Thanks, Chris. I was just thinking, with the grace that he has given us, can we not extend grace to you and anyone around us that, that well, occasionally drops the ball? We all do, right? <laughs> a few times in a day. <laughs> Let me log in. Can I just pause for a word of prayer? Father, let your words ring out loud from this podium with power, but let them not only rest in our minds, but also come to rest deeply in our hearts today. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, good morning, church. When I came in, it was half uh, full. Uh, now it's relatively full, and I'm really glad to be here sharing the word with you today. At home, I teach my two primary school kids, and uh, in church, I teach uh, our youth, some are, who are here today, and I saw some online. Well done. Um, so, which means that I'm constantly trying to come up with fresh ways uh, to engage them to come up with things that actually stick in their minds. And which is that, that's my mindset. So uh, as we all need to be woken up today, some of us, with, or all of us had one hour less sleep, I'm gonna do a, a wake up activity with us, okay? Uh, I'm gonna throw you some quotes and you're supposed to let me know where they're from. Okay, you ready? First one. Help me if you can, I'm feeling down. And I do appreciate you being around. <laughs> yeah, that was from Pamela Beatles' um, name. Help, from the album Help. When it came out, it topped the UK, US, uh, Australian, and even the German charts. In the in, in Netherlands, it, it came up to 62, which kind of speaks of you know, the, the Dutch taste in music. Second one. Uh, it's the love that I found ever since you've been around. Your love puts me at the top of the world. Carpenters, is, is there only one? <laughs> top of the world, yeah. Or is it only all of, or is because we're on the same generation. Um, online, you can also unmute if you're faster than Pamela uh, with your fingers. Okay, third one. This one, I think even, even my kids will know. Knowing me, knowing you, uh-huh. There is nothing you can do knowing me, knowing you. Ever, yeah! Okay, now we're getting serious. Third, uh, fourth. This is third or fourth? Yeah, fourth. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Psalm 33. Very good. Hey, online, I don't hear anything from you. Uh, five, the fifth one. Create in me a clean heart. Renew a right spirit within me. Psalm 51. And the last one. The heavens declare the glory of the Lord, and the sky above proclaim his handiwork. Try again. <laughs> Good attempt. Almost double it. And add one, add a few more. <laughs> Psalm 19. Okay. No surprise, today we'll be looking at the Psalms, at Psalm 32 in particular. So the book of Psalms has been called the song book 
of God's people in gathered worship, which is why I chose all those pop songs, famous pop songs, um, to kind of bring us into this moment. Uh, and then we end up with a quote of our Psalms. The 16th century theologian, John Calvin, he says, he wrote that Psalms represents an anatomy of all parts of the soul. And he says this, there isn't an emotion of which any can be conscious of that isn't represented there in as a mirror. Praise and thanksgiving, it's there. The wonder of creation, we just heard it. Psalm 19, um, feelings of contrition and sorrow, Psalm 51. And even, and perhaps not surprisingly, unforgiving and vengeful thoughts. That's in Psalm 69. So if you've never spent time in the Psalms, I highly recommend that, yeah, you do. I'll make a start. As a songbook of God's people, the book of Psalms expresses a wide range of experiences and also emotions. But it doesn't only do that. If we spend time to meditate on the words, it also helps shape our emotions. You see, the Psalms recognizes that our emotions, they're not a problem to be solved. It's just part of our human raw material, which can be shaped for good and for noble ends. Could you please turn to Psalm 32, where you have your Bibles, and please keep it there. You need to see it to better follow what I'm going to be saying. What I want to do today to help us understand and to experience the Psalms is so first we take an overview, we understand how it's put together, and then we're going to zoom into the various parts and highlight certain words and phrases where Psalm 32 links with other parts of our Bible. So Psalm 32 is a penitential psalm, one of the six in the book of Psalms. Now I'm going to ask like a school teacher, what is a penitential psalm? Okay, what is a penitential psalm? It's from the word paying penance. It's a psalm basically ex that expresses the emotion of being sorry for the wrong things that we have done. The other famous penitential psalm, Psalm 51, and that David wrote after the prophet Nathan confronted him about the entire sordid affair about Bathsheba. This Psalm 32 has also been attributed to King David and is actually thought to be written after Psalm 51. And I'll show you why later. Now first I want to show you, I want to share with you something, actually the first thing which struck me when I first started studying this Psalm. Now another question. <laughs> Can anyone tell me, without looking at the Bibles, how many Psalms there are in the book of Psalms? Yeah, this is 150 Psalms. Very good. Pamela was not first this time. <laughs> we can't always be first. <laughs> so out of the 150 Psalms, only six of these are considered penitential. I mentioned earlier that John Calvin felt that the book of Psalms reflects the anatomy of the human soul. 
Do you see where I'm going? Okay, some, mm -hmm, not yet. Okay, in general, the majority of Psalms fall within one of these five categories. Worship Psalms, laments, which a lot of us know a lot, <laughs> quite well. Royal Psalms basically talks about the king, kingship. Thanksgiving Psalms and Wisdom Psalms. This is what struck me. It is easier for us to sing songs of worship, adoration and wonder than it is to go to God and by extension to other people to say, we are sorry. We are more likely to lament over our situation, ask God for help, tell God, look what the awful things that people are doing to me, to us, than it is for us to recognize admit and confess our own part in it. So it actually shouldn't surprise us to see just six I'm sorry Psalms out of 150. But like Calvin says, it really does give us a mirror to look deep into our own souls. Now, let's plunge into 32. It has an uncharacteristic linear flow in thought progression. Why do I say uncharacteristic? Because you must understand this is Hebrew, Hebrew poetry. As one commentator puts it, one of the roles of Psalms in scripture is to touch and to kindle us, rather than make a defense to a proposition. However, Psalm 32 reads, when I read it, it read like almost like one of Paul's epistles, and Paul is very structured. It begins with a premise. We just read, um, and uh, Chris's version has happy, and I didn't use happy because happy in, gives us a different emotion, I think. So I decided to use blessed instead. So the premise, verse one and two, blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. And he builds on this premise. He cites a certain a personal example to spot this premise. You see it in three and four. He tells us his situation. For when I was and kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. And then verse five goes on to tell us what he did about his sin and the resulting forgiveness he received. I acknowledge my sin to you. I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. And finally, in verses six and seven, he draws his conclusion based on his premise that because we are blessed for when our transgressions is forgiven, we should therefore be offering our prayer of confession to God who will deliver us. Only the last four verses, 8 to 11, breaks this propositional pattern. And our main focus today will be on verses 1 to 9. And we know that in Psalm 32, King David receives his absolution. There was a word absolution just um, I saw. I was like, is it a difficult word to use? Well, absolution just means forgive, um, being forgiven. He knows he has been forgiven. And therefore, he can declare his blessedness is in verse 1 and 2. Whereas, if you read Psalm 51, there you only see his confession. 
And here I want to stop just a minute to ask us a question. How is it that David can be so assured that his transgression was forgiven? How dare he even claim that the Lord counts no iniquity against him? David knew he was sinning against God. And you know, in the Old Testament time, what, what happens when somebody sins against God? Dead. That meant death. But yet, in, in 1 Samuel 12, when Nathan told David that, um, that not only has the Lord taken away his sin, David will also not die. Now, who's going to pay for his sin then? I mean, surely every pore of justice in us screams that the wrongdoer needs to pay for his wrongs. Especially if his wrongs done, done to us, somebody needs to pay. Well, in Romans 4, 7, Apostle Paul, he quotes this Psalm 32. He explains that King David spoke of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. This means that it isn't the righteousness that comes from our own good works. God reckons the righteousness of Jesus Christ to our account so that neither us nor David need to pay for his sin. We do not need to pay for our sin because Jesus, Jesus paid for it for us on the cross. And in our 2 Corinthians 5 reading today, what did we read? Or what did Andrew read? God made him, Jesus, to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of, of God. Isn't it really interesting that King David, he, he lived a thousand years before Jesus. He must have somehow known this truth to have been able to allude to it in Psalm 32. Thought to think about. To recap, we talked about the problem of David's sin and the solution that is provided by God when he reckons the righteousness of Jesus to his, um, to his account and to our account. But how does David access this forgiveness, this covering that verse 1 talks about? Can you look with me to verse 5? I want to highlight to you that David was, at this point, was already a believer. So I want to dis disabuse you at the onset of the notion that once you are a Christian, there's no longer any need for further confession in our lives. Do you remember when uh, a couple of weeks ago, when Chris, um, during the all-age service, she bought this white shirt, and while she was talking, her white shirt kept on getting stained with more and more black ink. Now, black ink was represent, re represented the, black, the bad things she, she, she was doing over the course of a day, week, year. It is a helpful visual for us to keep in mind. Regular confession gets rid of those black ink marks on our white shirts. Okay, but confession doesn't merely mean just saying habitually the Lord's Prayer, you know, forgive our sins and we forgive those who sin against us. And I'm not against reading a standard prayer of confession as we, as we just did. I just want to sound a warning not to let things become so habitual that it only engages our mouths and not, not our hearts. All right, 
Let's be honest with each other. I'll paint you a scenario. You tell me if you've ever had it. Have you ever, ever experienced this? So at dinner time, you sit down, plate before you, you're about to eat, you forget something, you put your, your, your stack down, right? You get up and then you take it and you come back. How many of you have then forgotten you said your, your grace already and then you say your grace again? <laughs> you see, it's a habitual prayer. It, it's good that it's, it's so ingrained in us, but it's sometimes become a habit that we do without thinking. And even more so, we shouldn't do that in our prayers of confession. But if a standard prayer of confession isn't enough, what is enough? Embedded in verse 5, actually you can find a key to access the power of a true confession that leads to forgiveness and the restoration of relationship. And this type of confession causes real, permanent, positive change in our lives and in the relationships we have with each other. What do we do? Now, practically, first, we recognize and acknowledge our wrongdoing. Verse 5, David says, I acknowledge I did not cover. And there are two parts to acknowledging wrong. The first step is clearly you have to recognize that you have done wrong. But what if I know I've not done wrong? Yeah, excellent. But by whose standards? But, but, but I have a clear conscience. I sleep really well at night. But, you know, I can bet you a, a million rubles that Putin sleeps well at night. In 2011, you may remember Anders Breivik. He killed 77 people, mostly teenagers, on the island of Utova in, in Norway. And all through his trial, if you sometimes see films of what he, how he acted, and right up to today, he firmly believes that he did the right thing. So what do you do with, with such people? He and many others with actions most of us would call morally wrong would have no trouble with their conscience. And I'm sure that we all we come across such people also at work, at school, and even in our lives. And even in our, oh, I was going to say, even in church. <laughs> or actually, more likely, we have been such people ourselves. We have been convinced of our own correctness. And here, my husband will not very vigorously, he's not, but <laughs> right now. See, we convince our own correctness, we become blind to the fact but that by continuing to push our rightness, even when we are 100% correct, we will damage our relationships. Or maybe we are, we are unblind to that fact. Maybe we just value our own pride more than we value the relationship we have with the other person. In 1 Corinthians 4.4, 4, Paul writes, my conscience is clear, but what? That does not make me innocent. It is the Lord who judges me. So the point is, my conscience isn't the best judge of wrongful actions. All right, so not conscience. Well, sometimes, but it's not a, the, the very good judge. So what then? What about following our hearts? These days, I come across this saying so very often, 
you need to follow your heart. You know, in everything, a lot of things, in relationships, in choice of study, career, you need to follow your heart. The problem is, the Bible says, even our hearts aren't the best judge of what we should do. Jeremiah 17, 9, what does it say? Our hearts are deceitful beyond all things. Okay, right, we are done for no conscience, no heart. Um, what else? Uh, what about following cu culture? Must be culture, not well. Yes, um, but culture and social norms, they keep on shifting. I'll take the Netherlands, for example. You know, up to 15 years ago, it was still acceptable to sunbath, topless, on the normal beach. But these days, if you do that, you get people like, do normal, man. <laughs> so, not cultural norms. Okay, for science, then science is a hard, it, it's good. Science must be good. Um, they've done their research, right? They've done their studies. They must really know what they're talking about. Well, back when I was still in school, uh, Pluto was a planet. <laughs> but now I, I hear it's considered a dwarf planet, whatever it is, I don't know. And even if you go back further in time, in, uh, before 1930, Pluto officially did not exist because it was not discovered yet. And then in sociology um, uh, and psychology, one says, okay, we need social boundaries so that everybody can, you know, we can all function properly. But the other person says, no, the rules will only serve to repress, um, they'll inhibit us because we are naturally free selves and um, our free selves will choose always to do good. <laughs> Who do we believe? I mean, the rules of the game, it keeps on changing. I mean, no wonder our, te our teens are confused. Well, I am. <laughs> but so what we need is an unchanging truth we can stand upon above our own conscience, above how we feel, our culture, above even the scientific knowledge of our day. And, and as Christians, we have, we have that unchanging truth. We have our Bibles. That's why I'm always so excited. Bring our Bibles, take out your Bibles. In Matthew 24, 35, Jesus says, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. And look, he made us. He knows us. He knows how this entire universe is put together. Right, if imagine life were a cake. And then the baker says, he puts the cake down before you, and you, you want to know what ingredients made the cake and what's the best way to go about enjoying eating the cake. And if the baker next to you, instead of finding out what the baker says about it, you first go off, you, you taste it, you study it, you even get expert tasters in to opine on wow, what, what, what makes the structure, the texture, ingredients. But, but the baker is right next to you. What, just at least just listen to what the baker has to say about the cake, our Bibles. And then, and then go read what the experts have to say and then wait against what the baker says. But first you need to, to hear what the baker has to say and to know what the baker has to say. I know of course sometimes the baker's language is a bit, a bit archaic. He talks, he uses a different language. 
uh, yeah, instead of vanilla, he says what Madagascan stock or something like that. Like, but that doesn't mean that he, what he's saying is not true or, or right. It takes effort to go and understand what he's, he's trying to say. So, coming back to my point, to access the, to access the true power of a, of a confession that leads to forgiveness and the restoration of relationship. Step one, we take the Bible as our plumb line. And with the Holy Spirit in us as our guide, we, ident we identify where and if, if we've done wrong. And then step two, we acknowledge and confess that, that we have done wrong. In verse five, David says he did not cover his wrong. What does not covering up mean? Not covering up means completely owning up to the part you played in it without mentioning the other's part. I did this only because he did that. Children, my children, do that all the time. He did that because, yeah. But actually, we adults, we do that too. We just use more sophisticated words. And David acknowledges his wrongdoing, period. He doesn't tell God, look, I, I lasted for Bathsheba only because you made me a sexual being. In fact, David even uses three different words in verse 5 to describe this wrongdoing. He uses three, what, three words, sin, transgression, iniquity. Now, these three words together, it gives us a fuller understanding of what God defines as being wrong. Let's do a bit of word study. The word sin from the word hata, the Hebrew word hata, it means to go off a path. So, path. What makes you go off a path? If you step out deliberately, that's one. If you, yeah, if you're not carefully watching the path. Or third, if it's so dark, you cannot see. What is one solution if the night is dark? Put the light on. Pamela's getting all the points today. <laughs> Shine a light on the path. How? The Bible says your word is a lamb onto my feet and a light onto my path. So some of us may be going through some really, really dark times and we cannot see the path on our feet. But that's when even more than any other time, you need the word so that you do not step off the path. And there's yet another dimension to sin. So before you start, yeah, congratulate, congratulating yourself on your Bible knowledge, I've often said that Satan knows the Bible better than any of us put together. Let me explain the second word David uses, transgression, pasha. That means rebellious self-assertion. Well, what's that in plain English? Well, as easily as, as I can put it, in plain English, that means no one tells me what to do. Self-assertion. This is the same self-assertion which Adam and Eve caused Adam and Eve to make a really, really, really bad decision back in Genesis. So sin is not only going off the path, it is also an attitude of our hearts. Which means, 
There can be times when we are right blank on the path, but can still be sinning because our hearts are not right. In the story that we read of the prodigal son, we read about two sons. The elder followed all the rules, never left the path. The younger left, squandered all his inheritance. Who was right? Both were wrong. Verse 9 throws further light on this. It says, Be not like a horse or mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. The horse and the mule behaves and does all the right things because of the bit in its mouth and the bridle over its head. Do you know someone, or even yourself, who constantly goes through this unending cycle, sin, consequence, and that's the effect of the, the, the bit and the bridle, confession, then repentance in sackcloth and tears, only to, be, to fall back on the pattern when that consequence is removed. Why? This happens because we aren't really sorry for the wrongs we've done. We're just really sorry for the consequence we're, we're suffering. And that's false repentance and false com com confession. And God says, be not like the horse and the mule without understanding. So think, are our, our, our actions motivated by the bit or the bridle? Or are we genuinely motivated by our love for God? And herein is the key to the true repentance and confession. In verse 5, there are two words there. David acknowledges his sin to? To whom? To God. He's not saying that, no, he didn't sin against Uriah, Bathsheba's husband, David murdered. The crux here is this. True repentance recognizes that any sin is ultimately a sin against God, which God covers over by the blood of Jesus. And the key to breaking that pattern of sin is understanding what David is saying at the end of verse 5. He says that you forgave the iniquity of my sin. You see that, the iniquity of my sin? But isn't iniquity just a synonym of the word sin, right? The sin of my sin. Why is he repeating this, the same two words twice? The iniquity of my sin means the grievousness of my sin. So true repentance recognizes that our sin is so grievous. Why? Because God, to cover over our sin, had to uncover Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, our God, our Creator, he was uncovered, he was stripped, naked, nailed, nailed to the cross so that we have the blessedness of being covered. And if we truly realize how abhorrent and how grievous that is to have somebody innocent die in our place for what we have done, and this is just not any someone, this is our Creator God, if you realize that, we will never want to sin again. And that's a key to breaking the pattern of sin. It's not about the fear of personal consequences or, more likely, the embarrassment of being caught or the inconvenience of making amends. 
or for some having to eat the humble pie by saying, I am sorry. It's the realization that God, because of his great love for me, had to be totally naked, exposed and uncovered on that cross that, that I could be covered. And it's with this overwhelming gratitude, that awe, that amazement for what he has done for me that should stop me, that should stop us from desiring sin anymore. And finally, this is my last point. You know what the icing on that cake is? It's not even by our own efforts that we are able to come to that realization of gratitude, the point of on our knees. This unending cycle of sin, consequence, repentance, and then restoration relationship, and then back to sin again, it is as old as an Israelite story in the Bible. Remember, they kept on sinning. There was a cycle of sin that they couldn't break. What solution did God offer there? Any guesses? In, in Ezekiel 36, 26, God said, I will give you a new heart and I will put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. All we need do is so simple. All we need do is just to believe. It's made it so easy for us. Shall I pray for us? Father, let us give us a heart of flesh. Give us a heart of flesh to be able to look upon the cross not, not only as a symbol of forgiveness that you have given us, but also help us understand the price you paid on the cross to cover over us because you were uncovered. Help us to realize that and help us to have that overwhelming gratitude come upon us such that we would never ever desire to sin again. In Jesus' name, I pray. Amen.